The small square of hardtack biscuit might as well be a piece of ceramic tile. You bite into it, try to, and your teeth wrench and scrape against it for a long moment. When you do finally get a bite with a triumphant crunch, the taste is reminiscent of stale breadcrumbs. The tough and frayed strips of jerky aren't much better in terms of texture, but the spices seasoning the meat leave a surprisingly tantalizing flavor on your tongue. Though your teeth may ache well into tomorrow, your stomach does feel satiated for now. This scene, Food Rations, comes to you from Describe.com. Visit Describe.com slash RPGbot. That's D-S-C-R-Y-B dot com slash RPGbot. Use the code RPGbot at checkout to get 10% off your first subscription payment. not see that coming bravo good sir bravo you have a new league and with us is tyler kamstra hi everybody and ash eli um i guess how's it going i I, i'm still processing (laughs) well that's not our intro music no no it's not all right tyler what is happening well, today we're talking about survival. Um, now, I don't mean the skill, but I, I mean the skill a little bit. But we're going to talk about survival and survival mechanics and survival scenarios in tabletop RPGs. Now, this is an episode people have been asking us to do basically since we started this episode. And we've put it off and we've put it off because it has taken a bunch of research to actually find good answers to these. Wait, okay, let me get this straight. People have been asking us to do this episode since we started this episode? Uh, yes, um, I actually got a message <laughs> several seconds ago saying, hey man, where's survival? Are you done yet? You just started. <laughs> no, but seriously. <laughs> yeah, since, yes. the in- since the inception of the podcast, this is a topic that people have been asking for because mm-hmm. it is so interesting in fantasy games if you can get it right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it it's a lot of fun to play with if you enjoy like the survival crafting genre of video games. Like you get the appeal. Like yeah, things are hard. It feels really good to overcome those basic difficulties. Like it adds an extra level of challenge that that isn't just kill monsters, take their shoes. It's a cool system, but a lot of games make it very very difficult. So we're going to talk about how we can do it right, and how we can make it work in D&D and Pathfinder based on what we can learn from some other games. Okay, so what makes it so hard to execute on? Uh, well, for one thing, you can't stab hunger. You could try. Um... I, can't, I can't stab <laughs> hunger, but I can stab an elk, and that's almost as good. <laughs> Just name it hunger. There's your, there's your solution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh... So games like D&D and Pathfinder, a lot of dungeon fantasy games, a lot of other tabletop RPGs, they're very much a power fantasy. So something as mundane as hunger usually 
like doesn't really play into the game a whole lot. And in a game where most conflict is solved by like, uh, I'm going to hack a computer or I'm going to teleport to space or I'm going to cast fireball into this room and shut the door. Like survival feels a little silly sometimes. So in a game where none of the tools really have anything to do with survival, it's very difficult to execute. Also generally, the things that you would need to survive in a realistic survival scenario are often very inexpensive. Like trail rations in D and D cost what, like a silver piece for a day's worth of food or something like that. Uh, so imagine if you're a backpacker, or a hiker, or a camper. So imagine if every one of your like freeze dried camping meals cost like ten cents and weighed like an ounce. It's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna stack these to the heavens and just carry them with me. It'll never be a problem. Yeah, I mean, it would literally be dumb to not carry all that food with you because if you needed it, you'd want to have it. Exactly. Um, and and even, even if you don't resort to buying trail rations or whatever, usually you can just say like, okay, we have a level one ranger in the party. Cool. Done. Uh, survival is no longer scary. We are incapable of getting lost in whatever terrain we're in. Someone has proficiency in survival, so food is always easy and readily available. And even that, even if you don't have a ranger, if someone can cast a couple of really easily accessible spells, yeah, you're done. Food, water, no longer concern. Shelter, not a problem. Um, D and Pathfinder don't even have rules for what happens if you sleep naked outside in the snow. Like I'm. Just not a thing. Unless it's very cold, in which case you'll suffer some debilitation, yeah. uh, which, which we'll get into. And yeah, I mean, exactly what you said, right? Like, if I'm in a city, we've already discussed, money is meaningless. There's food available, you'll find it. <laughs> if you're in a forest, there's food in the forest. If you're in a swamp, like, there is still the opportunity, unless your DM is declaring literally everything is completely dead here and there's nothing alive, and there never was, there's food. So... This is a topic that I have particular experience with. Um, I, for a long time, have run a, a campaign that is dealing with survival. And I will say the best way that I've found to make survival work in 5th edition is, one, civilization is rare. Two, uh, it is in an area where food is scarce. So in the north, like or in a cold climate where there is conceivably food, but it's going to be harder to find just because of the inhospitable environment that you are in. So uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit uh, as we go through, like uh, all, these are the problems that we're facing because it is not easy to make survival mechanics work in 5th edition. But hopefully with some of the suggestions and experience that I can bring up about how I ran this campaign, it might help you guys get a better sense of what works and what doesn't work. Great. I'm looking forward to hearing about that because uh, I have yet to be in any successful survival campaign. So, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad someone on this podcast isn't just talking theory. Yeah, it's like we're, <laughs> we're, we're playing Rhyme of the Frostmaiden now. I feel like we've hardly been hungry. Um, I mean, but, Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, that's not the, the main focus, you know. But. Well, but it is an amazing environment. Like you talk about an mm. inhospitable environment. Like mm. I haven't come across any cornfields yet. I haven't seen, you know, herds of cows. The buffalo are not roaming. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're, all, they're, they're, they're literally sacrificing people so that they can eat. And I just want to clarify that while I think the campaign was successful, uh, I would not say that it was perfect. 
there uh, obviously there is no perfect solution, and there were some some parts of it that didn't work exactly like I wanted it to. But uh, we can get into the weeds later. Yeah, and and while we're dwelling a bit on food, like I'll call out. So we did an episode, I think last November, heading into Thanksgiving. Think about it, uh, talking about food in tabletop gaming. And one of the things we caught up in that I want to call out again now, we're talking about food and water as like a key part of survival. It's boring all the time. And so I think this is something that, you know, we're going to get into these details, but you kind of need to recognize you can do this for an arc. You can do this for even a long arc. Probably this doesn't belong at every tabletop, actually worrying about rations, actually worrying about water. Um, But yeah, so there's there's other things that can make it complicated to survive. Uh, Let's talk about some of those things. Yeah, so let's let's go through a list of basically what we think defines a survival scenario. Like, what are the mechanics that our game needs to hit to feel like that kind of simulationist survival situation? So we hit on food and water. Like, that's the most obvious. Uh, if you're in a survival situation, the first things you think about are like, okay, what am I going to eat and where am I going to drink water that's not going to immediately kill me? Next, you need to worry about shelter, because if you've been outside, weather bad. Uh, Sometimes it's too hot. Sometimes it's too cold. Sometimes water falls from the sky in various forms and makes you sad. So sometimes water comes at you in giant walls, and that also makes you double sad. That's true. Uh, I'm going to say if we're worrying about tsunamis, we've gone a little beyond your conventional survival scenario. (laughs) It's very acute. It's also important in a survival scenario uh, that the characters are unable to easily leave the situation. Like, that, that's always a classic thing. Like, horror movie, it, it very frequently, like, oh, yeah, why don't they just leave? And then there has to be some story device for why they can't leave. The car won't start, etc. Survival situation, like, why don't they just leave? Oh, they're on an island, and they don't have a boat. Survival situation. So the inability to leave, very important. Yeah, I mean, for instance, right, you're in a desert, you're not walking parallel to a, you know, a beautiful oasis. If you're in a swamp, you're for some reason stuck in the middle of the swamp, or there's a very good reason why you have to go forward. Um, and these are things towards the end we'll talk about from a DM's perspective. How do you build into the narrative a reason why your characters are now stuck and unable to leave the situation they find themselves in? We also need lasting penalties for anything bad that happens, like realistic survival scenario if you drink bad water you could get sick and that sickness could kill you it could incapacitate you for several days it could just make everything else way more difficult so for the survival situation for your survival mechanics to be meaningful the situation the consequences need to be a little more impactful than just like lose a hit point or two because yeah a lot of dungeon fantasy games a hit point or two isn't a big deal you can get it back with medicine or magic and then it's just not a problem um and then the the final and perhaps most important thing is just general resource scarcity in any survival scenario like the difference between a survival scenario and then just living a place is that you do not have an abundance of resources readily available to you so like Think about your house. I live in a house, uh, house, apartment, whatever. Um, in your house, you, pr- you probably have some food that you can eat. And if you need to get more food, hopefully you can go out and buy that food. Resources aren't super scarce, like there's a limitation, money, availability, those things. But if you're lost in a swamp, there isn't a grocery store right there. 
Like you don't have a pantry full of food. You might have like a couple days worth of rations in your backpack. You might have a water skin full of water. If you're really well prepared, maybe your mule has some extras. Uh, but the inability to just quickly replenish all of your supplies um, places pressure on the characters that is really central to survival scenarios. And if this feels alien to you, like if you can't quite wrap your hand or if you can't quite wrap your head around like the inability to find necessities, uh, take yourself back to spring of 2020 and you're looking for toilet paper. <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah. That's a great comparison. <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't eat the toilet paper, but still like, it, it, <laughs> you know, it, it, it is, a, it's like, okay, I normally go here and normally there's food here or normally there's toilet paper here. And now there's not. What are we going to do? And what do we have at the house? Suddenly you're looking and it's like, you know, those ramen packages don't look too bad oh. for eating. Oh, God. Okay. Cool. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Made me nervous there, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. You weren't um, wiping with ramen packages. Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, with that horrifying image in mind, <laughs> let's talk about literally anything else. Yeah. So are there, are there any systems that you've seen that actually do survival well? Because I think a lot of what we're going to talk about is we don't feel like 5e or PF2 do a fantastic job. Not by themselves, no. Yeah. So uh, a very, very kind Patreon supporter named Derek Batts, who is uh, a member of the Third Gallon podcast, sent me a message almost a year ago today. And when, like when I said earlier, people have been asking us to do this for a while. I wasn't kidding. Um, he sent me a message about a year ago today saying, hey, you should do a survival episode, and I strongly recommend that you read this game called Forbidden Lands, because it's got awesome survival mechanics. And uh, hey, Derek, you were super right. Forbidden Lands has really good survival mechanics. Um, it's a it's a low-powered dungeon fantasy game. It's like not quite as brutal as Morkborg, um, it, but not... At, it's definitely not like D&D superhero fantasy. Um, survival is a central part of the game. Resource scarcity is a big thing. You can only carry so many things. Uh, food and water are realistically heavy. Um, you can have problems with even just basic stuff. Like, I went camping and I messed up starting a fire, so now it's cold. And uh, we have to deal with that problem. Like the, those basic mundane things are built into the game in a way that really, really works. But the dungeon fantasy storytelling still also works very well around that. Um, so very, very informative. If you want that low-powered dungeon fantasy feel where survival is really a thing, Forbidden Lands, just pick it up and play it. It's really good. One four any's. Um, but if you want to stick to D&D or Pathfinder because your group's already playing, because it's what you know, that's totally fine, too. And we're going to try and borrow some ideas from Forbidden Lands because I like to steal things from other games. Uh, I, too, like to steal things. So for uh, for my system... <laughs> from other games or... Uh, <laughs> what I'm about to mention isn't necessarily another game. But oh. <laughs> um, so that's why I'm like, eh. Um, but uh, uh, so the system that I used for my Middenheim campaign, which is where I ran my survival stuff, was in 5e. But I took some stuff from two different sources uh, along with my own homebrew. One is a really good uh, uh, sort of unofficial supplement made by this guy named Giffy Cliff, 
really great uh called darker dungeons and it's a way of like uh expanding on the gritty realism section of the dmg and just going ham with it uh and uh if you're going for a more dark gritty sort of feel for a game uh that is a good place to start i will say that there are some things that uh, are kind of obtuse about it like sometimes he just is like so characters get exhaustion what does exhaustion do i don't know uh, so it's just <laughs> like uh so, so sometimes uh he you have to kind of read between the lines and come up with stuff yourself um but uh the other source that i took inspiration from is something i mentioned before is a uh a supplement for uh, flame, Lamentations of the Flame Princess called Veins of the Earth, and it's about uh, realistic exploration in an underground system, and it's a real weird book. Uh, I highly recommend it because it's just it's got some unique, interesting stuff in there, uh, which I'm going to talk about later, uh, but uh, the thing that I'm not going to talk about is it has a whole system for generating caves, like cave systems. And it's really interesting and unique and uh, highly recommend it. It will take some time to sort of trans convert it to 5th edition because it was made for Lamentations of the Flame Princess. But it is, uh, it's, it's a really interesting sort of book. Well, that's cool. Yeah, talking about like carrying food and water and like adding realism to carrying food and water. I want to call this out. So if anybody's been backpacking and they've had to carry food and water into the woods, You'll remember it's heavy, and the worst part is the water. Um, for folks who maybe haven't done that, I want to call out a gallon of water weighs a little over eight pounds. I think a lot of people probably don't know that. And then if you're a person who, who lives in a part of the world that uses metric, uh, a, a liter of water weighs a kilogram, and you probably did know that because the metric system is sane. <laughs> And for people who can't do the conversions, uh, a liter, or sorry, a gallon is like two point something liters. No, a, a, gallon, a gallon is almost four liters. A liter and a quart are actually pretty comparable. Promise. That sounds right. A anyway, a gallon of water, very heavy, but that's about how much water you're supposed to drink in a day. And then uh, if, you're, if you're out adventuring, if it's hot, you should be drinking more. So, uh, yeah, uh, don't bring water. Um, there will be some lamentations, but they won't be of the flame princess. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, see, I see what you did there. And then maybe one more thing worth calling out. A lot of what we talked about, what can lacking food and water do to you? What can bad weather, what if it's too hot? What are these things going to do to you? Um, in 5e, ultimately, it's going to come down to exhaustion. And, and we just did an episode on status conditions. But to remind you, you know, there's multiple levels of exhaustion in 5e, and it gets worse. Um, it, it culminates in death, and you could argue like that's the worst worse, possibly. Um, in Pathfinder 2, what are the detriments that are going to happen if we're lacking food and water, if we're caught in a poor environment? Yeah, so we, we talked about this on the food episode way back in November. Um, so, yes, 5e, you can go a few days and you start taking exhaustion, like you said. PF2, you can go a few days and then you start losing hit points. Um, I believe it's 1d4 hit points per day without food one hit point per hour without water and you can't heal those hit points back until you eat and drink again. But if you get like uh, a hamburger and a glass of water, all of a sudden you can restore all of those hit points. So like your party, whoever's the best at medicine comes over and slaps band-aids on you for a few minutes and then your starvation is magically fixed. Now, let's, let's glue this fat back on you. All right. Good as new. Get out there. 
as uh, as can be evident, you, uh, the base rules for food and you know water are kind of underwhelming. Let's say so for this, Kiffy uh, Glyph offers a solution, and the reason I'm, I uh, I bring him up is because uh, his sheet that he made for his system darker dungeon, you can actually get that on roll twenty. Like, that's one of the pregens that they will allow you to do. So it's really easy to track all of this stuff because he has different trackers for things. And the major ones are hunger and thirst, fatigue, and temperature. Um, and they have six different stages. Well, seven if you include zero. Um, and basically the way it works is that at certain times of day, your hunger and your thirst is going to go up. So at the mor- in the morning and at, at night your hunger goes up to the next stage. So it goes from stuffed, well-fed, okay, peckish, hungry, ravenous, and starving. Uh, And it only gives you exhaustion once you reach ravenous and starving. But the key is, uh, unless you're taking more intake of food, you can't go up to the next sort of... uh, So if you lose a... If you you skip a few days without going food, just eating one meal is not going to get you right back up to perfect. You have to eat extra food, and you also have to keep in mind that every day you're getting you're going down to hunger levels. So you have to it, it can spiral really easily if you let it get out of control. And if you eat too much food, then you become poison for a while. Um, so the way that uh, I dealt with uh, rations and stuff to make it so that we're not doing too much math because that gets really boring. Uh, you can use a psionic die sort of system where players, uh, depending on how much rations they have, let's say they start at a D12. Every time they take rations, they roll the dice. If they get a 1 or a 2, it goes down to a D10 and then keep going from there. So once they get down to a D4 and then they roll a 1 or a 2, then they're out of food. Um, so that is uh, something that you can do if you don't feel like doing too much accounting. For me, I kind of ignored thirst because they were in a place where it snows a lot, and as long as they had fire, they could boil water, and it was going to be fine. Um, but food was a big pro- was a big problem, especially for where they were at. I mean, they could just eat snow, right? <laughs> I mean, that's not it's not going to really satisfy. I mean, you can eat snow, sure, go ahead. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend I, it. <laughs> it's like you I, hope I, the- I have been told that apparently eating large quantities of snow is not great for you. It can make you very sick. Yes, yes, it can. Yeah, that makes um, sense. But you can spend calories heating it. That too, you, but also uh, eating water you found on the ground without boiling at first, generally not great. Um, so that, uh, that dye system for consumables, that's actually the same way that Forbidden Lands handles it. Um, the Alien RPG, and I think of a couple other of Free League's RPGs, use something similar, basically just a supply die um, that can go up to a D12, and if you roll a 1 or a 2, it goes down. And so like the, the fact that it's being borrowed in other games shows you how effective this system is. Um, yeah. And I... I guess I can't say that it was bare and borrowed. Maybe, uh, uh, so, I'm sorry, Ash. What was this guy's name again? Giffy Giffy Glyph. Giffy Glyph. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's entirely possible that Giffy Glyph arrived at this independently, or maybe he got there first. I don't know. But regardless, um, the system is in multiple places because it works. Actually, Giffy Glyph 
did not put that in his system. Uh, uh, he he has his own system for tracking rations, but it's really obtuse and complicated. So <laughs> I came up with that myself based on uh, the psionic. Like at that point, like psionics were becoming a thing in five E, and I thought it was a cool system to sort of track uh, uh, supplies and stuff. And I felt it was just not obtuse, not intrusive, easy to sort of handle. Yeah. Okay. I misunderstood you. Thank you for correcting. No, no, you're, uh, you're fine. Yeah, the supply die thing works super well. That's how Forbidden Lands handles it. And it hits that like perfect median between two simulationists. Like you don't have to count every day's worth of trail rations. You just, I have a D10 food die. Um, and also it's not so obscure that food just doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. And, and to, to recap it, the way that works is right. I roll that D10. If I roll a one, you're saying I drop to a lower die and then I keep rolling it every day. So I drop to a D8, a D6, a D4, I flip a coin. And then what happens if I, if I flip tails on a coin? Then you're out of rations. Yeah. So Forbidden Lands, the smallest supply die you can have is a D6. So if you have the D6 and you roll a one or a two, like you've eaten your last bit of food, you've used your last arrow, you've lit your last torch. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'll keep track of each of these, basically what die I'm on. So the only thing I'm doing is kind of moving to the right. Um, and then if I, if good things happen, I can, of course, replenish that die back to that D10 or D12. Exactly. Okay. No, that makes sense. That's a, that's actually, that's a great mechanic that balances. I mean, uh, heck, I, I feel like for Rangers and their arrows, that might be a great way of doing it. Cause I also don't want to count your arrows, but they're not infinite, right? Yeah. Uh, that is a way that you can do it with arrows as well. You can do it with anything that you want to track, but don't want to like actually have numbers because it gets so awful and boring when you're having to do like reduce numbers by one or two every, every single time. Uh, this is just a way of like, okay, I was in, I was in battle. Uh, we'll say that I roll three times to see if my die goes down or whatever you guys decide on doing. And that is a way to sort of get across the idea of limited resources without it becoming tedious. Exactly. So I guess another thing that's worth talking about is the idea of shelter. Uh, so both 5e and Pathfinder 2 really don't call out a need for shelter. Like you're just as good being in a tent, being in a, a magical yurt as you are, you know, sleeping in the nude under the stars in a snowstorm, practically. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The 5e's mechanics don't account for where and how you sleep, basically, at all. Like, they require you to take long rests from time to time. Xanathar's introduced some rules for, like, what happens if you go multiple days without sleep, and shorter answer is you get exhaustion because you get sleepy. Um, but if you've ever been on a long camping trip, like sleeping in the dirt kind of sucks. Uh, so if you want to have a plausible survival scenario, you want to make shelter matter to some degree. Like you want to give your party some reason why they bother going to the inn instead of just sleeping in the middle of the road or something. So the thing, uh, that I paid attention to with this shelter, shelter was extremely important. Um, because they were in a place uh, that was extremely cold, had no sun, and was very dangerous. Shelter really needed to happen, especially because there were three different kinds of rests that they could do. They could do a short rest, they could do a protected rest, or they could do uh, an extended rest, is what I called it. So protected rest would allow them to get some of their, some of their features back and some of their spells using uh, what I called a spell die, which 
full casters had larger spell dies than half casters and you would uh basically spend them like hit die so you would roll and you'd see okay that's the amount of spells that i get back uh on on this day uh and you could only do a protected rest if you were in a place that protected you from the elements and was safe if you spent your time outside you could still rest but it was counted as a short rest um and creatures would get bonuses to find and track you uh and so, and then temperature, which we're probably going to talk about a little bit more in weather, uh, was important. So, like I said, with those trackers, with um, uh, hunger and thirst and fatigue, uh, temperature was also a, uh, one of those trackers that had seven stages. And once you got, and some, some uh, exposures could just bring you straight down to unbearable. Um, and if you weren't in shelter, your your temperature was not going to go up, uh, and that can have some negative consequences for you. Uh, uh, exhaustion, obviously. So, it really incentivized my players to find safe places to rest. Now, Ash, you reviewed Simbrum for us recently, uh, Ruins of Simbrum, the five E conversion, and yep. if I remember right. Um, it sounded like the rests worked kind of similarly to that. Like they had short rests, long rests, and extended rests, and like at at some stage you had to go back to town essentially. Yeah, is it similar yeah, to that? It was similar to. I did it without even having read Simbaroom. Like I had, uh, I basically just sort of converted the gritty realism from DMG into. I was like, gritty realism is too harsh. I think like it uh, it makes it so that spellcasters feel useless for the majority of the time, especially since uh, great realism makes sense when you're traveling between towns and, you know, it's a relatively populated area, but these people were going to go weeks, if not months without seeing another person. So uh, it needed to not be, it didn't, I wanted it to make, make sure that it felt like uh, the spellcaster still had stuff to do after the first, you know, day. Uh, so this was sort of the medium ground that I found, that I found worked for me. Uh, extended rest worked like long rest in, in, uh, in 5e, but you had to, you didn't have to spend like a week like you do in the DMG or I think in Simbaroom. Extended rests were only in, it was resting in a place of civilization or a place that I considered very safe. Like if you had, uh, uh, a magic item that created a barrier around you, which which was a thing that they could have and had limited uses, uh, they could take a long rest. Um, but uh, so it made those long rests like really rewarding, like finding civilization. Whenever my 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 players would find civilization, they would all collectively uh, breathe a sigh of relief. They're like we can finally get an extended rest. We don't have to keep using hit die. We can actually you know rest and stuff like that. <laughs> So everybody's cheering. We're not gonna die. <laughs> yeah, and that was the thing. Was like even protected rest. You could you didn't heal normally. Like you you would heal through hit die, uh, but you would also get a number of hit points back passively. Just um, it was equal to uh, the max hit die that you had plus your con mod. So if you wanted to get more than that back per day, you had to roll your hit die. And uh, once you're out, you're out. <laughs> Yeah, I, w- I want to make a pitch. So when we talk about shelter, what do we want? We want shelter from the elements. So we don't want it to be too hot. We don't want it to be too cold. We don't want it to be snowing or raining on us. We don't want to be sleeping like soggy, you know, in wet clothes. Because all of these things ultimately lead to not good rest. Yep. My offer would be, though, there is a level of exhaustion 
where you will sleep through anything. Uh, yeah, you might not wake up in the morning. Well, okay, no, I mean that's that's a whole other <laughs> thing, right? But if if it's you know if it's not so cold that it'll kill you, but it's so cold that it's uncomfortable, uh, you might wake up in the morning and basically not have benefited from the rest. You never really slept, right? And in that scenario, you might take a level of exhaustion. Um, so maybe having like a, a constitution check, like, uh, what would you do? Well, Xanathar's the rule for going without sleep is uh, DC 10 con save, and the DC goes up the longer you go without sleep. So if you tried to sleep and just didn't sleep well, maybe make that save with advantage. Yeah, I think that makes great sense to me. And then what I'll say, though, is if you hit a second level of exhaustion, so at second level of exhaustion, disadvantage on ability checks, and your speed is halved. Maybe at that point, you just get the benefit of the rest. Like, uh, unless it's so inhospitable that it might actually kill you, we're going to let you sleep outside. So now, as a, as a party, I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, okay, look, we could push on, we could try to find a protected cave, we could try to find a shelter, you know, a small copse of trees that we could, like, build shelter under. But if we can't find this, do I rest and risk in the morning some of us having disadvantage on all of our ability checks? Well, it's that or you don't rest and everybody has disadvantage on ability checks in the morning. Like, no, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, yeah, there's only so far that you can push yourself. Yeah. Now, um, now you can add some difficulty to that to to make the reason why the party might not set up camp. Um, Forbidden Lands requires a survival check to successfully make camp. So that's like you find somewhere safe to to camp for the night. You set up tents, you light a fire, you find fuel, all those things. Um, if any of that goes wrong, you're going to have a bad night. So you have to make a survival check to pass. And if you fail that, then you effectively don't get the benefits of having shelter for the evening. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty awesome. I'm imagining literally like I'm, I'm trying to find the fuel and somehow I accidentally burn the forest down. It's like, I have failed at camping very badly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so for the system I was using in terms of uh, uh, tiredness, like instead of it, because exhaustion was brutal. Uh, so you only got exhaustion if you were in the last two of the tiers of uh, the status conditions I mentioned. So anything that would normally give you exhaustion 5e instead of gave you fatigue. So if you skipped a rest or you didn't get a restful rest or you pushed yourself too hard, you would gain fatigue. Uh, and everybody would passively gain fatigue every day, once every day. Um, so you'd have to rest to get your fatigue up. Uh, and the other thing about fatigue is that when you get to higher levels, uh, higher, uh, like your fatigue goes up, it affects the DC of certain checks you make. So if you're trying to climb, if you're trying to run, uh, I would have you make a con save or athletics check, and the DC would go up by the number of levels of fatigue you had. Um, and that, in addition to exhaustion, which you can get at like uh, fifth and uh, or sixth and seventh level fatigue, can be extremely brutal and spiral very quickly. And it was like uh, Randall said, if you didn't have a restful night, your fatigue would go down still, but it wouldn't. You wouldn't be able to recover it. That sounds a lot like the enfeebled condition in PF two, where like something bad has happened, your body isn't working how you would expect, and you're starting to take penalties on strength and dex-based stuff. Yeah, it is kind of like that. And also the thing about fatigue is that it's harder to get, get back up once you're down low. Because, because you gain fatigue from traveling every day, and you're resting every day, you're basically essentially just staying at the same level. 
So uh, the party would, if somebody was really low because something happened to them that they had fatigue, sometimes the party would be like, okay, we're just going to make camp for a few days so that we can get our fatigue back to a reasonable level. Okay, and then this the idea of fatigue that you're talking about, this is something that you added into 5e that runs parallel to exhaustion? Yes. So it's uh, this is from Giphy Glyph's uh, Darker Dungeons. But essentially, exhaustion is not something that you just get from like exhaustion isn't a catch-all anymore uh which kind of annoyed me in 5e it's like oh too cold exhaustion you didn't rest enough exhaustion you didn't need enough exhaustion um because that could get really brutal in a system like this where that's the entire point is you might be hungry you might be cold and you might be tired and if everybody just always has exhaustion all of the time that's going to suck for everybody uh, so it's sort of like a middle ground. So you have these separate trackers and only once you get to uh, level six or level seven fatigue, temperature or thirst or hunger, that's when you start to get exhaustion. Um, and then once you get out of those, you lose an exhaustion. Cool. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about weather. Um, I guess I'm not gonna lie. I don't know that weather is super interesting mechanically in 5e or PF2, but I think there's a little bit here that maybe you could bring into uh, you know, developing a real survival encounter. So in the DMG, 5e has these idea of weather tables. Um, the idea is you're going to roll a d20. Most of them, the weather is as you expect it to be in the climate that you're in and the season that you're in. Um, there's a couple numbers you could roll. Um, I want to say it's like 17 and an 18, where it might be 1d4 times 10 degrees colder than you would expect it to be, given the climate, given the season. And a couple numbers where it might be 1d4 times 10 degrees hotter than you would expect it to be. Uh, and so every day, if you wanted weather to matter, you might roll a die. Um, if it's, you know, the middle of the summer in the desert, it's already probably too hot. And there's small, unlucky chance that it's going to be even hotter. And there's a small, very lucky chance that maybe the weather is actually tolerable. Now, let me talk about just how insane that range is. So let's say it's 70 degrees. It's the perfect, like, spring, early summer day. Weather's beautiful. It's sunny, but not too hot. You go to sleep. You wake up in the morning like, ah, yes, world, what do you have for me? Another beautiful, beautiful day. Well, you rolled wrong on the weather table. So uh, roll me a D4. Oh, look at that. You got a four? It's now 30 degrees. And what happens at 30 degrees? (laughs) Water freezes. (laughs) So you can go overnight from perfect wonderful comfortable weather to like ice on the ground get some salt get a shovel like uh, or you can go the other direction it could be 110 degrees and you could have a potentially lethal heat wave for a day out of nowhere mm, yeah but, that's but that would certainly challenge your character's ability to survive it's oh Mission accomplished. <laughs> it sure would. And then if you're in that desert scenario, hey, it's now 150 degrees. You're <laughs> dead. You're dead. <laughs> you're dead. Jeez. Like, yeah. hey, that table, much like me, does not go outside. Like, I just woke up and my arm is cooked. What's going on here? <laughs> I feel like a brisket who's been left out too long. Um, <laughs> is somebody smoking? Oh, no, it's just... Yeah. <laughs> All right. And um, I, it is worth pointing out that these, uh, we're talking about degrees. These are degrees Fahrenheit. It's literally everything is given in Fahrenheit. Celsius would be so much worse. Sure. Um, Sorry, no. But yeah, I think, I, I think I do agree with this. If you just change that to like uh, by fives, so 1d4 times five, 
this becomes sane. And if anybody lives in the Midwest, you've experienced this. You've experienced this in a day. Yeah, that does feel like a much less crazy range. Um, and, and now, real quick, I'm going to beat up on PF2 because we've been beating up on uh, D&D a bit. So PF2's weather tables, also completely insane. Uh, they break up temperatures into different bands. And basically, if you go really high on the temperature scale, you take fire damage. If you go really low, you take cold damage, which makes sense. And then cold and fire resistance apply anyway. Um, but the exact bands are just absolutely nuts. Um, the, the lowest level of cold before it starts becoming a problem is mild cold or mildly cold or whatever it is. Um, guys, give me some guesses. What range of temperatures in Fahrenheit would you consider mild cold? 40 degrees. I live in Michigan where for parts (laughs) of the year, we don't go over 32. So I'm going to go with like 30. 30 is mildly cold, right? Uh, yeah, the, the range is negative 10 degrees Fahrenheit to 30 degrees Fahrenheit, which is uh, if you're if you live in a place where you use metric because you're not insane. Uh, 32 degrees Fahrenheit is zero degrees Celsius. So that's where water freezes. So you can be outside in just like shorts and a T-shirt. No problems in Pathfinder below freezing for as long as you want. Enjoy. So that's probably so, not going to work. No. So these systems do not accurately represent weather. They don't even really try. So if you're going to do anything with weather in your games, just look at those and be like, okay, that's crazy. We're going to try something a little better. Yeah. For me, because I assumed it was always cold uh, or very cold because this was a world that had no sun. Uh, temperature, ambient temperature, didn't really matter to me. I, that wasn't going to change any of the roles. It was just going to, it, it was going to be the same thing every day. But where I did track weather was in weather events like blizzards or um, rain or hail or that kind of stuff because that stuff can be interesting and can dramatically affect your temperature more than say just like oh it's like. Four degrees colder today doesn't really change anything for me. Yeah. So, like, uh, on the one hand, you could go with the system that they have set up for you where it's like you're going to get wild swings every day, which is insane. Or you can go with a more realistic thing where, realistically, it may only go, like, four or five degrees either way, maybe ten on a bad day. Uh, but uh, that realistically, that's not going to change a lot, if, if especially if you're in the same sort of area that you've been in so if you're in if you're in the desert and it gets hot like a 10 degrees hotter it's like cool i'm still hot (laughs) like (laughs) this doesn't change anything i can't wear less clothes i guess if i go naked um but and the same like if you're in icewind dale and it's like you know five degrees colder okay doesn't change anything for me so like i feel like tracking temperature like this doesn't really add much um, but tracking weather patterns can be very um, effective. Uh, also, because I don't know where else to put this, uh, another thing that I added into this system because light was so important, light was also a resource. And this is where I pulled from Veins of the Earth because in Veins of the Earth, light sources are also currency. So looms is what they're called. Uh, combustible wood, 
uh, oil, anything that you can conceivably make fire or light with is considered a currency, some sort of loom. And I also had cantrips like light and dancing lights consume looms as well. So players were having to juggle like, okay, once we reach town, we want to have enough that we can trade for people, uh, but we also need enough to sort of survive. Uh, so what's the trade-off there? Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that makes sense. You know, talking about if it's always cold, then the fact that it's even colder probably doesn't matter because you have your winter gear. If it's always hot, it doesn't matter if it gets even hotter because you have gear. The one place where I'd say you could make this matter as a DM, uh, let's say it's cold, but it could get cold and wet. And, and a lot of gear, if you get your wool wet, if you get like a goose down wet or, or any feather, you know, any down uh, quilting clothing wet, it loses its ability to insulate. And all of a sudden, instead of having a benefit, you actually have a net negative. And you have to come up with a solution for drying that out before it is useful for protecting you again. Um, and so I think thinking about how you can bring uh, precipitation or other parts of the game in to mess with the fact that, you know, your cold players are trying to keep warm, trying to think about how you can bring uh, precipitation in because your cold players are trying to not get wet so that their clothes can keep warm, letting them know this is going to matter and then making them suffer the consequences uh, can be interesting. Similarly, in a hot climate, the sun is your enemy. The sun on bare skin is going to burn you and you're going to take damage. It's going to impact you. So maybe as you're fighting monsters, if some of like, you know, your breathable shirts are getting shredded, you might literally be losing clothing. And if you don't have something to patch it with or a different shirt to put on, you could be hosed and you might ultimately suffer uh, the, the impacts of your climate because of these small weather events that you're talking about. Yeah, and um, rain isn't always the solution when it's hot either. And yeah, Randall, you hit it nicely. It, rain sucks when it's cold. Uh, when it's hot though, rain can feel very nice, but it can also create humidity. And when it's very humid, the heat is more deadly. Like if you if you look at the National Weather Service's like heat index chart, the the axes are temperature and humidity. And as it gets both more humid and hotter, the heat gets more deadly. So like a dry heat is not as dangerous as a moist, swampy heat. And I love the fact that PF2 actually calls that out. Yeah, in high humanity, you're supposed to meant to treat the bands a little bit higher. Uh, as somebody who grew up in the rural South, where basically you open the door and just swam outside there through the humidity, a hundred percent, I feel this. Cool. Um, so a another key part of survival is overland travel um, and all the random encounters that you're going to have along the way. So we've done specific episodes on these things, so we're not going to dive super deep into them. Um, but we thought it was worth maybe bringing up a couple of the details about this. Yeah. So the reason distance and random encounters matter is because they create resource scarcity. Like you have to spend resources to get through those problems. You have to eat food as you're traveling to get where you're going. Eventually you'll run out. You have to spend spell slots, hit dice, arrows, whatever, when you're fighting off wild animals or wild monsters or whatever. Um, and those resources eventually run short. And that is one of those key components of survival scenarios is the possibility and likelihood of running out of resources. Now in 5e, no one uses encumbrance rules because they're a huge pain. They're not very interesting. Um, and they're not by, fun. They're not fun. 
yeah, buying things you need, generally very, very cheap, like expendable things like rations and arrows are dirt cheap. A bag of holding is an uncommon magic item and carry 400 pounds. So yeah, just load it up with food, water, and arrows, and you're fine. Buy a mule if you need to. Um, and then put the mule in a bag of holding. <laughs> uh, how much does a mule weigh? I feel like uh, it's more than 400 pounds. That's true. It would break the bag of holding. Uh, get, get a miniature not- pony. Done. All right. Keep going. (laughs) Um, uh, PF2 has a a more abstract system called bulk, which uh, doesn't track things in pounds. It's just the general bulk of items. Uh, So, like, large items, even if they're fairly light, can be a lot of bulk just because they're difficult to carry around. So that's a little more abstract. It's a lot easier to use. Um, Forbidden Lands uses that, but also has a cool visual aid, basically. So, like, you have a box on your character sheet Like, you draw an outline around it representing how much stuff you can carry, and then each item takes up a space of some size within that area. So, like, you can carry X number of items, and you have this very clear visual indicator, like, okay, uh, if I want to pick up this cool new sword, I might have to put down my quiver of arrows to make room. Yeah, this should sound really familiar to people who love the inventory management simulator called Resident Evil. Uh. (laughs) Yeah, it's, yeah, that's uh, pretty much exactly it. Um, but yeah, in in D and D and Pathfinder, you can generally get around it. Just have a wagon and a mule and stuff. Um, but or a bag uh, of holding, or a bag of holding. Yeah, uh, and the the fact that those things are inexpensive can quickly make survival very difficult to play beyond the levels. Well, it can make survival being boring. Yeah, basically, it trivializes the challenge. Exactly. Uh, and then it gets worse. And then it gets worse. Yes. Uh, so we mentioned earlier how D&D and Pathfinder are fundamentally like a super heroic dungeon fantasy power fantasy. Characters are functionally superheroes. You will eventually get powerful to the point that you can fly up in the air, teleport to space, uh, call meteors down from the sky, all of these crazy things. And when you can do any of those things, scrounging for food in the woods feels a little ridiculous. Yeah, in uh, fact, you can just summon Cheeseburger and it's going to be fine. You can cast Summon Cheeseburger. It's a second level spell. You get 1d8 cheeseburgers with or without cheese. Yeah. <laughs> How many patties do you want on this thing? Does it come with tomatoes? Yeah, Magic Ruins uh, survival mechanics uh, quite hard. So one of the ways you can get around this, uh, quite simply, first, make spell slots rare. Uh, like with extended rests, uh, suddenly, if you're not getting spell slots back every day reliably, is it worth casting that spell? Two, what I did for stuff like uh, Goodberry or Create or Destroy Food and Water is they require a material component uh, that you can't just supplement with your Arcane Focus. You have to find it. So if you want to cast Goodberry, you have to go and find some Mistletoe. And depending on where you are, that's going to be a difficult challenge. Um, so it is the same as like trying to find food. Instead of trying to find food, we're just going to try to find a way to make our food for today. And Liam and Stiney Hut. So the thing about Liam and Stiney Hut is I hate Liam and Stiney Hut. <laughs> um, and I think it should die. Uh, so what I did for Liam and Stiney Hut was I said players could not cast it. But what I did say was that there were certain magic items that were traded around that were like a sort of Lehman's camping hut, which they had a limited number of uses that they could use and get those protected rests that I told you about. But, um, you know, that was something that was really valuable. 
Uh, then for um, things that can create fire, we already talked about that. That that consumes your light source anyway, because even if you're creating fire, you still have to give it something to catch. Um, and then if you really want to go ham, which is what I did, ban Revivify. Oof. Uh, Resurrection still exists, but Revivify does not exist anymore. And remind people of the distinction between the spells. So Revivify is a really easy to access spell. I think you can get it like third or fourth level. Um, just costs a diamond. And uh, you can bring someone back to life within a minute. Resurrection is a much higher level spell. Uh, and you can bring someone back to life whenever. Uh, so conceivably, because I kept this, the party low, like Resurrection was a thing that they could seek out if they found the right person, but it was going to be. And it wasn't going to be something available to the party with one of their party with, with one exactly. of their slots. Exactly. And while lesser restoration and greater restoration did exist, it wouldn't necessarily affect your hunger level or your exhaustion. It only affected conditions. And the other thing was that um, with with uh, with these spells, because the, the lore I had is that the god of the original god is dead. He was the sun. He's essentially dead. Any sort of divine healing magic that you're going to be casting is going to have a chance of corrupting the person that you are casting on. Um, so that is some ways that you can, like, again, 5e is really working against you with this stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you really have to design it in such a way that it is not a power fantasy. Anymore, and that is hard to do. And I think there are better systems for it. Yeah, I think everything that you describe is interesting. And, and I think you really hit it on the head in the beginning, though. Ultimately, making spell slots more rare, making them a more valuable resource, which kind of gets to Tyler's point about resource scarcity, is a fantastic way of making the rest of this matter a lot more. Um, if, if you want to take something um, like uh, Giphy... Giphy Glyph. If you want to take something like Giphy Glyph has offered, uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. You'll be able to find this. Um, if you want to do something out of the DMG so everybody can read, kind of have the same page, be on the same page, follow the same rules, Gritty Realism really is fantastic for this, right? Needing a long rest, which is going to take a week in order to regain all of your spell slots, make all of the rest of this harder, where, you know, honestly, carrying rations is an easier solution than Goodberry. Carrying water or using a survival check to filter water and hoping that it works, that there's nothing viral that's going to make you sick, is a better solution than creating water. Uh, building shelter is going, you know, I can, with, with the spell resource economy, I can cast Lehman's Tiny Hut every night, and I'm going to be fine, but if it takes me seven days to regain it, that is untenable. Like, that's an occasional solution. That's not an every night solution. So I really do think if you're trying to make this work, that's where gritty realism can come in. And so I think now is probably a great time to talk about, well, how do we actually make this impactful? So you're at a table, uh, whether you're a player or whether you're a DM, you're discussing, well, what can we do to make survival matter? I'm going to make the argument first that this isn't something you want an entire campaign based out of, unless the plan is for the campaign to be fairly short. Uh, because playing this way for, let's say, six months at a time sounds awful, right? Like, it, that isn't why we come to something like 5e or PF2. There are better games for it. I feel called out here. <laughs> uh, like, like I said, it is not a is not a style of play that I would recommend to everyone for sure. Um, and uh, and it wasn't these systems weren't always interacted with because uh, occasionally they would come across civilization 
and then they didn't have to worry about this stuff anymore. But there would be, so there would be, we, and when they were in civilization, it wasn't like they were just passing through. No, we would spend several sessions there because it makes whatever towns you have really matter and have a lot of importance to the players and they form connections there. And also as a consequence of not making them want to leave. Characters, literally the players. But a clever DM can find ways to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, so it also just made like every sort of journey out that they had to take uh, nerve-wracking and scary, which was what the the idea of the campaign was, because it was def- it was a post-apocalyptic campaign. It was a campaign where there was danger around every corner that they could die at any minute. I had them make up backup characters and stuff. Um, and it is not a style of play that I would recommend to everyone because a lot of people are going to hate it, but some people might like it. Um, and in fact, I have seen it work in other games too. Um, so if it's something that everybody is on board with and wants to try and wants to see if it's fun, then go for it. And if you decide later, well, this one, this mechanic's kind of bad. I don't really like that. Or this mechanic is irritating. Then only play with the mechanics that your group finds interesting. Um, you don't have to go whole ham. Like you don't have to be like, well, we're doing survival, so we have to bring in every system. Just pick the ones that work for your table. No, I think that makes sense. And what I will say is, if your table is talking about it, thinking that this is something that's exciting, this would be a great reason to go try a game like Forbidden Lands for sure. But if you're th- if you have an ongoing campaign, you just want to squeeze this in. Everybody agrees this would be fun for an arc, but it isn't an always. Or maybe it's a gateway, right? Like, let's try this, and if we really love it, then maybe we will we'll go play um, Source like Forbidden Lands. I think agreeing on ground rules, agreeing, look, okay, we're going to do this for an arc, it has an expiration, and then there's a way out, um, makes a lot of sense. So a couple ideas for you. One, let's say you're traveling through a desolate area, you're in a swamp, you're in a desert, something like this. An intelligent creature makes a habit of stealing resources from the party. All right, so let's say I'm in a swamp and I have a green hag that either comes in while we sleep and picks off pieces. You know, so first they take the rations bag and you wake up and the rations bag is gone. If there's a druid in a party, we can't have that. So the druidic focus goes missing and then the materials pouch goes missing. Like you can, you can tell the story and you can actually add the, the, the dread of the survival scenario by literally, oh, hey, it's great that you brought resources. Let me take those off your hands. Um, if it comes to it, you could even like work something in mechanically in combat. So let's say they do set a guard after the first thing is stolen, and the guard does detect that that something's there. You can, um, you know, have combat, but have something get stolen through the combat that is going to make it that much harder to survive. So that there is no food, there is no water. Um, you all of a sudden have to think about: Do I want to cast this shelter spell? Um, every time they cast fire, creatures attack them. Well, but now we have to stop having fires at night, and that's going to make things more difficult. The other thing you can do is put them in a situation where, like, let's say, yeah, you were going to go through the mountain pass, and then all of a sudden, we had this strange weather we talked about where it dropped 40 degrees overnight, and now you're in a blizzard. And now the question is, do you keep going, or do you turn back when you're already a week in, and the snow's piling up three feet deep? Well, now they're trapped in it. And in order to get out, they have to make a decision whether they go forward with her adventure or they go backwards. All right. I think we did it. Uh, so we have a question of the week this week. Uh, this week, our question of the week comes to us from Wing Lady on Discord. What homebrew or custom feat would you add that has both advantages and detriments? The question is prompted by pondering how would I mechanically play a character 
with insomnia without just skipping long rests. We talked about this on the Nerdversity episode where Caleb and his group implemented um, mechanics to represent their own Nerdversities. So they would have some benefit, but also some significant drawback. And uh, I feel like Insomnia would fit into that system very, very well. I'm not sure that I would make that like a feat that had a resource cost because if it has a built-in cost, I would say like, yeah, you can have this. It's going to give you some benefit. It's going to have some drawback. It's like insomnia. Maybe, maybe you always make the saving throw to avoid exhaustion for going without sleep. Um, But then that's offset by like, you only sleep four hours a night or something like that so that you can keep watch for the party. Um, well, uh, a few things, uh, one thing you can look at actually is Simbaroom, which I reviewed recently had, uh, uh, something similar to this. They had, I forget what it was called, but it was, there were these certain feats that would give you extra bonus attribute points, but they came with a disadvantage or a, or a detriment of some kind. Um, and everybody would get one free. So you can do it that way. But, uh, for insomnia, a way, something if you want a really cool way to do it, maybe you could do you're immune to being put to sleep by magic, or maybe you have advantage against saves that put you to sleep, uh, which would be good. Uh, or maybe you're unaffected by the dream spell. That's pretty niche, but could be cool. Uh, but in exchange, um, you uh, have to make a wisdom saving throw Every time you go to you try to take a long rest, or you don't benefit from that long rest. But since you're used to it, you don't gain exhaustion. You just don't benefit from it. Like you aren't healed, you don't get any features back, all that stuff. That'd be my suggestion. Cool. And so the idea of like, okay, what homebrew, what custom feat would you bring in? Before we started the show, we were talking about the question and asked. You brought up the idea of, um, well, drugs. <laughs> yeah. So my character in Pathfinder right now, uh, Pathfinder one, not two. Uh, is a, a character, she's a witch named Pruth. Uh, she recently saw uh, a friend of hers die in front of her trying to protect her. And so she's dealing with a lot of survivor's guilt and post-traumatic stress disorder. So I basically came up with the idea that she was having trouble sleeping um, and having you know nightmares. And so she took Dreamtime Tea, which is a drug in Pathfinder, uh, to help her sleep and that you can work with addiction mechanics and stuff there the addiction mechanics in pathfinder are brutal but uh they are there um and uh if that's something you want to work with or you think would work for your character that is something that you can do oh yeah so so what i think about is like if you think about the fallout series um, I think there's a great example we should borrow from that is they have all of these different like psychs and drugs that you can take where it's like for a brief moment of time, I get plus two to strength and plus one to dexterity. Uh, but after 10 minutes of that, I take minus two, minus one, and there's a chance that I'm going to become addicted to this to where the drug doesn't even work. I just have to have it or that modification is permanent. Yeah. I think there could be some interesting RP if everybody at the table is comfortable with it. Uh, and I think that's a conversation you should have in session zero if you're talking about adding something like this. Uh, but there could be both interesting RP and interesting mechanical impacts of basically saying, you know, I'm Popeye, and as Popeye, I eat my spinach, and when I eat my spinach, I'm super powerful, and then immediately after, I have the drag 
you know, as if you cast double haste on me and now haste is expired. Yeah, I like I like these ideas. Um I I feel like I kind of didn't answer the question, didn't actually give like a homebrew feat with the uh drawback that and uh, advantages. So Tome of Heroes came out recently from Cold Press, and they have a couple of feats in there that I strongly recommend. One for sorcerers, one for monks, where you can spend hit dice during a short rest to recharge sorcery points or key. And that presents, like, there's a cost. I'm going to give up on potentially getting hit points back to get some other resource. And I really, really love that cost-benefit decision. I think that's a great mechanic. See, so yeah, I I love feats like this that have fun trades. Yeah, it's like you are literally bleeding to death right now. Yeah, but I got one more fireball in me. <laughs> All right, okay, I think we did it. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast and rate us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. It's a quick, free way to support the podcast and helps us to reach new listeners. You'll find links in the show notes. You'll find affiliate links for source books and other materials linked in the show notes, as well as on RPGBot.net. Following these links helps us to make this show happen every week. Sorry about the time, Dan.